Rising Giants Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bessel Meat Podcast. I take Sputnik 5 uh, vaccination. I feel much better. No, no corona needed for me. It's, it's, it's over. I feel very good. That was my attempt at a, at a, at a crappy, um, at a crappy uh, impersonation of the Russian accent. Um, terrible, terrible. I do apologize uh, that I wasted five minutes, uh, five seconds of your time. Um, welcome back to the Basket Meets podcast. I'm super excited to be relaunching what we're calling a season three of Basket Meets podcast. Um, we've been hard at work to find some really cool guests for you guys. And um, I really wanted to do the first episode in studio, but in the world of Corona and this crappy pandemic, you got to make do with what you got. You know what I'm saying? You just got to do what you got to do. <laughs> so the first episode is with uh, a really cool personality that I wanted to talk to for the longest, the longest time. His name is, of course, I mean, Matalga. He's uh, a uh, filmmaker. He's best known for his work on this legendary Jordanian movie called Captain Aboraid. And he's done so much more since then. I was interested in his story. I was interested in his journey. I was interested in, um, you know, his grief and overcoming it. Um, he is a spectacular, spectacular person. So I'm really excited for you guys to check out this episode. Um, and I promise you there will be so much more Basil Meets episodes coming your way. We have, um, we have one that we're recording this week with an old boss of mine who's now quite the legend and um, and uh, and a few others I'm not going to talk about right now, but you know we're working on them and we're going to have a bunch of really cool guests on this podcast. The goal here really is to have different types of conversations that you might not get anywhere else. And um, so with that, we're trying to find the guests that could provide us with these type of insights and conversations that you couldn't find anywhere else. So... Um, I do want to talk a little bit about a Rising Giants Network. I think, uh, by the way, I'm sniffing a little bit because uh, I've been, uh, I've been, uh, you know, I had a cold for the past couple of weeks, and uh, I did test for COVID. Man, I've tested five times for COVID so far, and I think I'm going on my sixth soon. Um, I just like every time I got a sore throat, every time I feel like I got a headache, every time I feel like I got a runny nose, I just run to the nearest testing facility and I jam my nose with that swab. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure some pieces of my brain are lying around the city. But um, so far, uh, negative cases uh, or negative tests, which is great. Um, and um, yeah, but anyway, I digress. So Rising Giants Network, I talked to you guys about it last time. We have eight live shows right now on Rising Giants Network. You can check them out on risinggiantsnetwork.com or uh, you can go on our Instagram page, Rising Giants Net on Instagram um, or on Twitter. You can do that too. And I've got some really super exciting news I want to share with you about Rising Giants Network, but I cannot do it right now. So you can tune into the next Basel Meets if it's if that news is finalized. And if not, then the one after it. So you can hear the news. If you have not checked out Legendary Rock Stories, my other podcast, you need to go to check it out. Check out season one. It's out. It's about Metallica. It's voice acted. It's narrative. Um, a lot of cool sound effects. It's by me and my my partner, Bashar Nishad. So without further ado, I want to uh, get you to get into this podcast right now and um, enjoy. This one is for you. 
Are you sleeping usually at this time or are you up working? Uh, I am a night owl, but this morning I woke up at 4.30 with my daughter. So okay. I'm, uh, I'm still going, but I, I wake up early, normally at 5, 5.30, and I sleep late. So I, like, I'm trying to find where do I make up for the lack of sleep, because I operate on four to five hours of sleep. But today in particular, I'm a little bit slower, but we're, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to make it exciting. So we're good. <laughs> this is the dad life, man. This is the dad life. You know, it's, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, with my, with my son, we wake up, uh, you know, I don't even remember waking up anywhere past 7 a.m. Uh, in the last year. Like, I, I don't remember waking up any. How old is he now? He's 11 months. Well, he's going to be one in like a week, actually. So I should say he's a year old. Your son and my daughter are the same. She just turned one. Oh, amazing. Oh, congratulations. Amazing. Oh, must be great. She's so cute. I see her on Instagram, man. She's absolutely adorable. <laughs> We're bringing her into the into the modern age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She acted in a short film at, at when she was four months. She had this no, role no way. Amazing. Online, someone said we need a baby, and so we're like, okay, well, like, I got Hollywood. One. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> um, and I see your dog as well. Your dog is beautiful, uh, like a white German Shepherd. Is that right? Shepherd Husky. Yeah. Shepherd Husky. Yeah, we're we're in the market for a dog. So we're looking for, we're looking for, for a dog and it's just it's just it's we're concerned about the level of uh you know of care that we need to give uh at a point we're also like handling a baby, you know. So we might be delaying it a little bit. But uh, yeah, that's that's where we are. It's a lot of work, but it's so rewarding. I it's, for me it's like I can't imagine living without a dog. Oh, amazing. Oh, cool. Well, that, that there you go. That's that's enough for me. For the people at home, if you hear uh, a little bit of an echo in the background, that's because we're doing this remotely. And uh, you might feel uh, there's a bit of uh, sounds here and there. That's because I'm at home. And I just want to say I'm with my, uh, we meet for the first time. I was going to say my friend, but I feel like we're going to be friends. But, you know, um, my, let's say my new like friend. I've known you for a while. We've been following yeah, each okay, other for quite good. some time. My new friend. My new friend, I mean, and uh, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I've been following your work ever since I want to say Captain Abu Ra'id, which is I want to say that's that's almost over 10 years ago. Right. And uh, and we've we've yeah. you know, it was it was like 13, almost, yeah. 13 years ago. And, and you know, for me, it was uh, I remember when that came out, it was such a pride moment, you know, because uh you know, here, this guy was a Jordanian filmmaker and uh, he's got his movie up on the big screen. And I remember when it came out here in Dubai, I went with my family and we got some popcorn and we went to watch the movie and we were so excited to watch it. Um, and uh, and it turned out to be this incredible movie that stood the test of time. So uh, I'm I'm... I'm really excited to speak to you because, you know, I've been following your journey ever since. And, um, and so maybe like we, we start there, we start, like we, we go all the way back and, you know, talk to me about, you know, that particular movie that made uh, an impact on me. And I know my brother and, and my family who, who really were super excited to watch this movie. So like, I want to take a step back and go over there and like, maybe just be before that point, who were you? What were you trying to do? What was your mission? You know, like that sort of thing. Sure. Um, well, in brief, I never thought I'd be making movies in Jordan because uh, I've been in the U.S. 
30 years, 31 years. So we immigrated to the U.S. when I was 13. And then my parents went back to, to Jordan when I started college in Ohio. So I, I grew up in Ohio, mm-hmm. in Columbus. And then after a five-year career, I studied business in college in, uh, at Ohio State. Oh, wow. And simply because they scrapped the cinema department the year I joined. So I was like, well, I guess I'll switch to theater. And I didn't like theater. I've always loved Spielberg and the camera and music and all that. So I thought, okay, well, I'll just kind of switch to business and maybe this far-fetched dream of making movies will find its way, you know. So uh, long story short, I worked right out of business school in the telecom uh, field in the corporate um, communications sect where there was a convergence of voice and IP, voice over IP, and it was basically setting up uh, networks over uh, uh, companies, mid-sized companies, selling them platforms that uh, converged their voice and data infrastructures. Interesting. And so I did that for five years, living in a business suit, and just watching my dreams of making movies die. <laughs> and it just became such a far-fetched thing. I didn't think this would even you know, become a reality. It was like Hollywood, like, no, I was in the Midwest, you know? And so, but what happened is that, um, and I'm giving you like my, my backstory to all that, but what happened is I ended up setting up a home theater and every day, you know, working 10, 12 hours a day, uh, I was really into my telecom life, did very well in that, but I would come home and uh, Netflix had come out uh, come out at the time where they would mail you DVDs. You know, it was right. the beginning of Netflix before the streaming world. Um, and I would just like devour. I would watch one or two movies a night, late into the night after work. I would basically go to work, work all day, and then go to the gym, think about work, 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 and then come home, eat ice cream, and watch my dreams on the big screen being made by other people, not myself. Yeah. And it was yeah. really cool having a home theater and I was very comfortable financially at the time in terms of, you know, when you're 22, 23, 24, 25, doing well, living in the Midwest, which isn't that expensive. I just started to spend my money on things, on toys, you know, BMW and all that. And then, and I was like, why, why, what's stopping me from leaving Ohio? I can just, Okay, I'm attached to my job, but like you only live once. And so at age 26, I picked up, moved some, some of my furniture to L.A. With, and moved here with my dogs. I had two dogs, Cello and Obo, and just didn't know anyone. It just started from scratch. And I had one friend actually in L.A., who was my link here, but uh, but I didn't know anyone in the film industry. And I just started writing shorts, kept a day job, and I started writing short films and filming them on the weekends, sometimes by myself, and sometimes writing things in coffee shops and then saying finding actors or aspiring actors in coffee shops, which in LA is like, you know, you meet actors everywhere. And I cast them in my movies. I would write them roles and say, okay, you want to, you know, collaborate? And we'd shoot things without permits. We'd go down in the underground and shoot things. We'd shoot on the streets. We'd shoot in office buildings. You know, I was just like, I wanted to learn by doing. And so we did that. I, I shot, I made a commitment to shoot one short film a month. No budgets, low budgets, whatever. It was like, I was just learning by osmosis, by doing, by creating, by finding my voice. Basically over the span of two years, even when I would go to Jordan, I would go visit friends and say, hey, you want to, you want to make a short? So I was always looking to make movies. And then I said, okay, now I need to apply to film school. So I applied to AFI, the American Film Institute. And lo and behold, I got in. 
Um, it was a very competitive environment, but they saw I was like really committed to making movies and making a life of movies because I felt like I spent five years not doing what I was supposed to be doing. So I applied, I got in, and the moment I got in, I quit my day job, my telecom day job in a business suit, and I started writing what would become my first feature film, uh, Captain Abu Raid. Uh, I had attempted to write a feature script prior to that, but it sucked. It was <laughs> awful, and nobody should ever read that. But it was my experiment in learning how to write and reading books and all that stuff. So, so I started writing Captain Abu Raid in the summer of 2005, and initially, actually, the title was called uh, Under the Tree and Over the Ocean. It was a ridiculous title, but it was about this old man who told stories to these kids under the tree, under the olive tree. And he, you know, over the ocean, he told them these big dreams, but he was just an airport janitor. But the inception of the idea came from my interest in a couple of things. My grandfather had passed away that year in January 2005, and I wanted to kind of capture his essence. It was He was... He was 93. He'd been educated in Switzerland. He spoke four languages. He was an ophthalmologist, the first ophthalmologist in Jordan. Uh, but if you saw him walking down the street, you would never know it. He's such a humble man. Mm. And that theme really fascinated me. It's like you make judgments on people without knowing anything about them, just by simple appearance, but they could have all this wisdom in their head. And he also had this like very innocent, uh, optimistic view of the world. And I think that's why he lived so long. Um, so I wanted to capture a little bit of that, but also I found myself telling a hero's journey story, you know, this unsung hero, this man at the airport, my father was a pilot, my brother's a pilot, I grew up next to an airport, so the, 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 the world of aviation was like everywhere around me, but I wasn't interested in making a movie about pilots, I was interested in making a movie about the invisible people, mm. this, this, uh, this airport janitor. And essentially, it's a Joseph Campbellian hero's journey, how he, I mean, if you look at Captain Abraham and Braveheart, not like I copied Braveheart's you know, infrastructure, but they have the same uh, journey. The reluctant hero, the call to adventure, the kind of like, no, I don't want to be involved, but then he gets sucked into this adventure, you know, for lack of a better term, and he gets involved in the lives of these kids, and he starts to discover the challenges and the dark things they have in their lives. Mm. And from that, he ultimately, you know, may has to make some tough choices, ultimately the big sacrifice. But it's really about people connecting and about um, making a difference. And it's about getting outside your comfort zone. Hmm. And so these themes found themselves in the 30-some drafts of the script that I kept writing and rewriting and rewriting while I was at AFI learning how to make films better than what I just did as these shorts on my own instincts. So I was learning by doing and learning by applying what I was absorbing from my film school experience and uh, thinking about, okay, how do I make my movie the best? You know, like that's my calling card. That's going to be my ticket. So between my first and second years at AFI, I went to Sundance uh, as a visitor just to see what it was all about. And I just felt like this magic in this place, you know, in Park City, in the snow, people's love for movies. And it was just, hey, you feel like this appetite for movies, for movie watching, movie sharing movies and this community that comes around movies. And I said, I'm going to make this movie. I'm going to come back here next year and, you know, next year, two years. And two years later, we were premiering Captain Aburad at Sundance. Wow. And then the next thing you know, you know, like 
audience, like, you know, standing ovations and people crying and all this stuff that they were moved. And then hearing people talk about this movie um, on the buses and in lines and seeing, it wasn't like the premiere. The premiere was, the premiere was great, but it was the second screening after the premiere where it was just like, you know, non Abu Ra'ed related people just at the screening. And you saw the lines outside and you're like, oh my God, this is a dream. This is like, it's just downhill from here. That's crazy. And so, yeah, so it was really, really special. And then we got the audience award and, you know, I felt like throwing up. It was just like so unreal. I never won an award for anything but that. So it was like very, you know, when Tarantino was like hosting the awards, it was like a really cool experience, life-changing, obviously. And here we are 12, 13 years later and the movie still has a life. It still gets renewed. It still gets interest. It still plays its screenings here and there. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's been life-changing for sure. I think that's incredible, man. I think, I think the fact that, first of all, it's your first, first feature film, right? It's your first movie. And, uh, and the fact that it's gotten this big is amazing. And I think I want to like, just get into that a little bit. First of all, when you shot it, you shot it in Jordan, Right. Um, and yeah. how, so I guess two questions for me was, you know, the funding question, how did that come about? And two is how was the reception of the filming community uh, or whatever that's called in Jordan, you know, uh, like were they receptive, were they, were you seen as an outsider coming in, you know, oh, but this guy's been in the U S all his life. And now he's coming to shoot something in Jordan. You know, like, how was it viewed, uh, not only from an authoritative perspective, but also from the community, like the filmmakers and the, you know, like, how did they view uh, your project and what, what you were trying to do? Uh, I'll answer the second question first, because um, uh, that's the short answer is there was so much enthusiasm around this film. It was incredible. It was because, the, the, you know, there was no f- film industry in Jordan. There, there was there had been a, a couple of movies that shot there and, you know, some movies, you know, Indiana Jones shot like the ending of it and Mission to Mars shot like some uh, second unit there. And, you know, here and there, there was an Italian film that like a biblical film that shot in the Holy Family, I think that shot there in Jordan. But there wasn't a local film scene hmm. and it was a lot of short film, you know, people learning how to make short films but we had to bring our crew from outside. So we brought all our uh, department heads and key crew from everywhere, from LA, from Canada, from France, from uh, Tunisia, Morocco, Lebanon. Uh, even our grips came from Lebanon. And the, the, the PAs were all, uh, pretty much all the PAs were Jordanian and they were people who were interested in kind of nurturing a career in, in filmmaking. And even Basil Gandur was my assistant on the film and he was just like, just, I think that was before he even went to USC to study film. So he was like a young kid learning. And now he went on to, you know, write um, Deep, which went on to get nominated for the Oscar and write and produce Deep. And so it was like a really exciting um, opportunity for us to learn. And I say us because I was learning how to make the movie while making it too. Um, My first film, you know. And there was a, just this incredible spiritual experience because of, I think, everyone that we had on the film was doing it with this love and heart. And they, everybody felt like we were doing something special. You know, it was, I don't know, it was, I don't think I'll ever experience anything like that again. It was really unique. Um, 
We had some skirmishes and some <laughs> problems with some locals in one of the neighborhoods who felt like, what's this production with all these people? You know, يخرب يا لعيبة. If you're gonna, if you're not, if we're not, you're gonna get hire us on this thing or pay us to use the neighborhood, uh, which we paid people to use the neighborhood. But there were always like there was one specific guy who was an ex-prisoner uh, who had some mental issues. He went nuts and he started uh, throwing uh, chains and water balloons on the cameras and threw a chain right at my face, just missed my face. And so we had like that, like on that uh, last wow. week of production. Oh. We had a lot of challenges in that neighborhood, but I didn't want to leave that neighborhood because, and you know, we had to have safety because of all the kids and everything, but I didn't want to leave the neighborhood because in the film, that's the salt is not in Amman. It's like half, hour, half an hour outside of Amman. But the reason we chose to film there was because they have this really beautiful Yellowstone, uh, the limes, the Jerusalem limestone, and these arched windows and these like really beautiful sets that make that give the movie extra character that you can't find in Amman. And in a way, we kind of created the hybrid of Amman. You know, one one second Abu Rad's coming up the steps in 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 by the citadel in Amman in the middle of the city, and the next scene he's um, he's in Salt. You know, uh, but as far as an audience for me, the, the audience was never just the local Jordanian audience. My audience was a world audience. I, I wrote, essentially my approach to the movie was if I were making uh, a three-act Hollywood kind of structured film with the local spices of a Jordanian, you know, the flavors of a Jordanian, uh, the humor and the touches of like the little, essentially the romanticism of looking at Jordan through the prism of someone who has, hasn't lived there since I was 13, but I still always went back and there was a nostalgia, mm. you know. And uh, and then I also wanted to give it like that little spice of the Italian films, the Cinema Paradiso and, and uh, Il Postino and, and the Vittorio De Sica films. You know, a little bit of like the harshness of the social class difference. But so it's an amalgamation. It's a movie that mutates, you know. It starts right. very pleasant and kind of whimsical and then it becomes much darker. Right. Um, anyways, that's... I'm jumping all over the place. But in, in terms of response, when we made the film, the reception was incredible. When we uh, showed the film, it, you know, people were very supportive, press and all that stuff. We had a lot of support. Um, there were, you know, when whenever you have something, there's always people who are jealous or whatever. But It is what it is. <laughs> you, you find yourself irritated by like, why would you... Why would you not understand how special this is? But, you know, Khabibay, you know. So, and there, were, there weren't that many, but, you know, those who were, um, were very vocal. Right. Um, as far as financing, what we did is my mother, who still lived in Jordan, uh, still does live in Jordan to this day, um, made a list, like, who are the people that are respected members of the community that we can go to? and essentially set up appointments when I traveled back to Jordan between my time in my first and second year at AFI. We had a big dinner at Hassam uh, Salfiti at the time. He said, okay, we'll invite investors and, you know, you pitch your movie and uh, we'll see who likes it. And then basically I went one-on-one, -on -one, uh, set up meetings, and I gave a pitch of what the film, and we had like this 17 investors at the end of the day. We had a lot of rejections. But there were 17 investors who put in, you know, 50,000, 100,000, 50,000. And not, nobody put in the money to make money back on the film. They were just like excited about the idea of building a Jordanian film industry. And this movie was 
uh, that promise, you know. Right. So it's a leap of faith for everyone. And we ended up making the film at a $2 million budget. Oh, that's, that's pretty good, man. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was amazing for me, my first film. Yeah. Look, I think what, what also is incredible here is, is a bigger story, which is, the, you know, um, a guy who was working a corporate job and um, who, you know, who did his uh, telecommunications job, which I, I, I had no idea you did, and, uh, and followed his dream and got to where he wanted to get to. I think it's really important that you did that. You know, you took that leap, leap of faith. And, uh, and it's, well, more than a leap of faith, really. It was a leap of faith plus, you know, you got some, um, you had some funding, you had some, you had a plan, basically. So I think this is what's really important here is that, you know, you, you sort of broke away from the norm um, and what was expected of you. You know, you're expected to, you know, just have a job, get married, you know, and it is what it is. But you actually... You know, you actually took a different, um, a different, uh, you know, a different path, which I think is great, and I think that's what's inspiring. You know, um, having that sort of uh, having the guts to do it. But I'll say this: this is the most interesting thing. Is I had no plan. I didn't right. know how I was going to do it. Right. So right. I remember when I when I was in my telecom between making these short films, I would sit at um, I would go sit at the um, coffee bean and tea leaf on Sunset Boulevard and just dream of it. Like, I remember thinking, I don't know how, I don't know how I'm going to do this, <laughs> but like, I just want it so bad. Yeah. You know, I, I remember feeling like it, it's, there's something, there's something calling for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was, like, it felt like there's something that is, I, I hated living, still living in a business suit when I was here. I wanted to be making movies all the time, not just on the weekends or, you know, whenever I could. So I really, my soul was like still, even though I was physically here in LA, my, my soul was longing for that validation, for that uh, acceptance. And when I got the phone call that I made it into A5, I was like, this is it. I have permission to my career. And, you know, I ended up selling all my 401ks, my stock options, everything that I had. I became a poor filmmaker, essentially, <laughs> taking student loans and all that. And uh, But I was excited about that prospect, you know? Yeah. And I still didn't know how. But what I did learn from my telecom life and my business life is then you just keep making a plan A, plan B, plan C, and then you just keep improvising as you go. But until I got that acceptance, it was just like learn by making films. And it felt like, you know, that whole alchemist thing, you know, follow your bliss and, and the world will conspire with you. And it felt like that's what I was doing. It felt instinctively that I was on some kind of, there was some, there was some joy in the ambiguity of the unknown. Hmm. But it was, um, you know, you know, it was turbulent because I didn't know, you know, and people thought, I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, you'd left a very comfortable life in Ohio to make short films in California. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Um, but it was exciting. And, and what happened is I would post these shorts. This is pre-YouTube, Hatta. You know, I would post these on my Apple page. I had an Apple page. Mm. And then YouTube came out after that. But then they, some videos went viral and people were sharing them. And it was like very comedic sometimes or sketch comedy or whatever. And, um, and I felt like there was enthusiasm and excitement to, to see films made in Jordan. I made a bunch of shorts in Jordan. Yeah. I think I think it's really important to be honest. Um, 
you know, to dream. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, sometimes, and it's not, it's never too late to act on, on these dreams. Yeah. I mean, uh, j- just personally, I mean, I just started uh, the podcast network, Rising Giants Network, just five months ago. But this was after excruciating sort of like self you know, um, uh, you know, self-examination, you know, it's just, what do I want to do with my life? Do I really want to do this? Do I really want to stay in this nine to five? Do I really want to do one, two, three, four? Now, um, I think I'm, I may have more of a plan, you know, for, for jumping ship and doing my own thing. Um, but, uh, but it was really important for me to actually recognize that, you know, this is something that I've tested. It did well. It, um, it picked up with audiences. Um, there's something here that I could potentially build, um, and and that's why we started Rising Giants. And um, and so I think when when I, when I bring it back to to you, what would you say is like as you followed that dream? Um, did, did you have like what was your breaking point? What was your first thing that when it happened to you, you said, "All right, well, this is it seems like it's legit." And I'm going to keep pursuing it. And then you said there was ambiguity there and you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. And, and you went to Los Angeles, right? Los Angeles is like the most competitive place in the world when it comes to film, acting, movie making, all that stuff. You know, wouldn't have been easier to do it in a less competitive environment. Um, you know, if not, then I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to hear why you chose that. And what was your first thing you said, if I do this, that, right, that's my step one. Because I always find that the, the hardest thing is starting. The, that's just the hardest thing to do is it's actually starting. Actually, the hardest thing isn't starting. The hardest thing is continuing after the excitement of starting. That's a good point. That's a great point. Absolutely. When you start something, you're excited about doing it because there's like, oh, I'm, I want to do this, right? And then you do it, and then you have failure along the way. And that's point. the thing. In the face of those like disappointments or failures or whatever you want to call it, that's where you get tested, and that's where you grow. It's called the dip, right? Seth Godin wrote an amazing book, very short book about it. But that's what separates the, the novices from the professionals. If you endure that dip and you actually grow in that, in that span of uh, uncertainty, I love right? it. Yeah. Whether Fantastic you're doing your business point. or whether you're following your dream or, you know, you go from being, okay, I, I want to dabble and have this as a hobby or I want to dedicate my life to this because there's no other way. And for me, um, when I moved to LA, I didn't fly out to LA from Ohio, which is mm. a long distance away, 2,700 miles, I think. Um, I drove to LA. I, I wanted it to feel like a pilgrimage. Right. I drove to LA and I said, I'm not coming back to Ohio, no matter how hard it is. Mm. And I remember in the beginning, it was very hard. But really what it was is those small, because I didn't know anyone. It, but it was small victories, making new friends in coffee shops and saying, oh, I'm excited. I'm going to make it. And then when I got my camera, I started learning about cameras and lenses and lights. And uh, I didn't know anything about any of that stuff before. And uh, And then finding my voice and then... You know, it's like immersing yourself through the experience of learning from the people you surround yourself by. You know, they say you are essentially the sum of the five people you spend the most time with, right? Mm. And if you spend your time in Ohio uh, surrounded by people who talk about football, uh, and when you're not interested in football, you're going to have a harder time than when you throw yourself into the pool of L.A. where the rest of the world doesn't exist. All they talk about is movies. Mm. And I was happy 
talk about <laughs> movies all the time. And then to take that to the next level, when I got into AFI, it's like, not only do you talk about movies, you literally breathe, eat, you have no life. You film four days a week, whether you're directing a, a short or you're crewing on someone else's film and learning from observing them, or, you know, you crew, you do, whether you're sound booming or sound recording or whatever. Um, so you learn by immersion. And for me, that was like the pilgrimage. It was the baptism into, into cinema. Yeah. And, you know, I made Captain Amurai and I felt like, wow, okay, success, blah, blah, Sundance and a million other film, amazing film festival experiences. Two years of traveling the film festival circuit and getting fat on amazing food and buffets and all this business. <laughs> but I still felt like an outsider because I didn't have my second script. Right. I didn't have another movie to go. Mm. So I had spent all my energy on my first film, but I didn't have my next movie. Movie. And so that was, it's like, okay, now what? You know, and every meeting I had in Hollywood with the studios and the development, they're like, we loved your movie. So what else do you got? And I was rushing to write like uh, a half-baked screenplay that wasn't ready to show, but I didn't have the, ex the experience to understand that you can't show something that is not in the position. In the, so I, a lot of doors closed because I hadn't done the same thing for the second one. So it took us another two years to get my next movie going, which was the Disney film, The United, you know? Yeah. And I didn't even write that. It was a script that they were trying to develop. And so it was a different kind of set of circumstances and a different battle to get that movie off the ground properly, even though it was under Disney. So every experience is different. But uh, someone told me, actually, Ayman uh, Mohideen, uh, who's now at uh, NBC, mm. uh, CNBC or MSNBC, we met at some, somewhere on the festival, I think in Doha, we met in Doha, at the Doha Film Festival in 2009. And he, he told me this, he said, you know, it's, it's interesting that you get invited to conduct the, the Vienna Philharmonic, and that's amazing. But the real test is, will they invite you to come back mm. to conduct again? Yeah. And I was like, ah, oh, this it really resonated with, you know? I love and it. I, it really made me think about like, okay, so what, what do I have? What's my next thing? And... What I learned from my telecom experience, I didn't apply in that regard because I just, it took so much energy to get the first film off the ground. But what I learned is that you have to have like 10 projects in the air and treat each one as if they are the most important one until you kind of shed some light and actually to get one off the ground. Mm. And so that's my philosophy and has been. And it, it really does take so much time and energy and effort and passion about each one because most of them will fail but the, the ones that will resonate and, and shine are the ones that um, they, they'll reveal themselves, you know. I mean, it's a highly, highly competitive environment that you're in. And that's, I think, you know, that's what makes your story, I think, also really interesting is that, you know, out of the millions who, who go to L.A., you know, how many actually succeed in making a movie, let alone a f like a career. Um, so I, I guess one thing I'd like to, you know, maybe uh, get into a little bit more is just post, you know, your premiere. Okay, you know what, actually, let's, let's, let's talk about the success. So, so obviously, you now you're a rock star, right? Like you've released your movie, and it's out there and, and you know, and people all around the world have seen it. And what does that do to you? Like, what does that do to your, 
you know, to your ego, to your, uh, to your, uh, you know, to your uh, confidence. You know, I got this, man. I fucking did Captain Nabura'i. This is me. I'm Spielberg of the Middle East, you know, and like all that sort of stuff. And then how does that, how do you follow that up with like, oh shit, I, I finished my two-year tour. Now, like, I need to look, look into, you know, how, like, when did reality hit you, like, right after that? So I, I, I'm interested to know that journey. Yeah, um, well, it gets to your head for sure, no matter who you are. Yeah. Yani, no matter how, I consider myself a, not an egotistical person, but come on, you have to have some kind of ego to, to make movies, right? Like to have like the ambition. And, yeah. and it's, I'm interested in duality and I'm actually writing a movie about that right now. And that, that's kind of one of the things that happens. Um, people keep telling you, how much they love your movie. I, I think I made a special movie. So with Abu Ra'id, it was kind of like, I knew that I knew that I had something special because I saw it over and over and over. I wasn't watching the movie. I was watching the audience. I was experiencing the movie with the audience. I watched that movie in the span of two years, 72 times in, with an audience <laughs> in theaters. Again, I didn't, I, I would go in and sit, look, I'll watch like, you know, I'll introduce the movie. I'll sit down. I have to wait for the, I had to do the Q&A after. I did 72 Q&As and every Q&A, at the end, I was like, I can't, I, can't, I have to stop. It's becoming an addiction. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But you're, you, you're not watching the movie. You're watching the sense of a community happening around your movie, you know? And when the silences happen in the film, I mean, I feel very lucky that I had that experience. The silences, you feel the audience stop breathing in the suspenseful moments and you see them like wiping their tears in the moments. And I, I mean, I, I still get affected by certain moments, even reflecting back on them. So yes, it gets to your head that you, that you're, you have a gift, but it doesn't matter because the proof is only in the pudding. You got to make a new recipe now. Right. And so I was writing this World War II set kind of epic movie. <laughs> I was interested in the same theme Unsung Heroes, I was writing this movie about this old cello player who passes away and his dog uh, leads this journalist back to this. He was a street musician, the cello player. Um, the, the, his dog um, gets discovered by this journalist who this old man almost vanished from existence and nobody remembers any of these things except this journalist starts investigating who was this man while writing this report about this giant movie star. While writing a bio about this giant movie star. And he starts discovering that this unsung hero, this old man who played the cello, was in the French resistance in World War II. And then he was like, he saved Pablo Picasso's life and he saved Charlie Chaplin's legacy and blah, 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 blah. All this, like, sounds great. That but sounds it was great. Just, it sounds great, but it's conceptually great. But then you read it, you're like, okay, this is not working. Because right. it's hard to write a good movie. I had uh, one of my professors at, at, at AFI, he said, it's hard to make a bad movie. And it's even harder to make a good movie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just hard making movies. Right. And so you're, many, you're creating everything from scratch. You're, you're concocting, you're cooking, but you're creating the, you know, the recipe yourself. So that was humbling. And I, I think the, the real test was... Um, the LA Times, okay, so we did an Oscar campaign after all these festivals and everything. We did an Oscar campaign for Captain Abu Raid. And the LA Times on the envelope section, the front page of the, what they call the envelope section, which is kind of like the, it circulates amongst all the, the across LA. It's the, the, the Oscar campaign kind of overwhelms this section. And, the, and on the front page, it had 
Captain Abu Ra'id projected as the movie that will win the best Oscar for best foreign film. Oh, wow. It had like the, you know, the, the image uh, of Abu Ra'id from the film. And I was like, Khalas, we, we're going to win the Oscar. That's <laughs> it, <laughs> And so we had this PR firm and it was like, okay, Khalas, we're on the, you know, you won, you, after winning so many awards, you feel like we're destined, you know? Right, yeah. And then the the Academy screening, this is, I'll, I'll make this short because it's like not that. No, this is interesting, the actually. Academy, well, the Academy screening ended up being January 2nd on a Saturday morning in LA, where in LA, everybody leaves LA. Right. So we had two Academy screenings, but they were like the, the big one. We had 10 people show up at it. And the, at that time, the rules keep changing, but at that time, you had to watch the films in the, in the theater to be able to vote on them if you were, it was a weird thing. Anyways, long story short, we didn't get nominated. We didn't even get shortlisted. Oh, wow. We were submitted as the Jordanian entry, but we didn't get the, the nomination. Right. And I, I was like uh, very disappointed in that. But then I asked myself this. I said, if I had the choice between getting this nomination and having this career or extending my dogs, both of my dogs' life by one year, which would, I make, which would be my choice? Mm. And it was a no-brainer. I was like, okay, the Oscar, who cares? Who gives a shit? Mm. Uh, like I like to me spending another year with my dogs is more significant, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, yeah, this is, this is, um, you know, that's done. And you know, my romantic life was happening at the same time. And so there were like more important things, um, but you get so absorbed in, uh, the circus of the awards and all this stuff. Uh, really what's most important is to make a movie that you care about and put it out into the world. And then it becomes the world's decision to, to love it or hate it, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, so what were you at that time in terms of like um, a human being, you know, like, okay, so we, we knew, we knew the poor guy who sold all of his shit to go to LA, you know, but now we're looking at, you know, uh, post, you know, two years after releasing his film and that kind of, where were you in your life at that point? You're, you know, what, what was happening with you? Like, were you dining with Quentin Tarantino? You know, were you, uh, were you, uh, were you married at the time? Were you- the festivals I would meet, uh, no, not dining, but uh, like, yeah, you, may, you, you would meet some people here and there. You'd have, you know, uh, mingle with, not dining with, right. uh, but yeah. you know, you meet, you know, you meet, I met a lot of people, um, a lot of uh, interesting people on the circuits and um, on the festival circuit. So that was cool. And a lot of studio, like the more interesting people are the studio executives and the agent world. What was your craziest meeting? Like, what was your like, I fucking can't believe I'm sitting with this person or I met this person. No, no, no. There were, there were so many different ones. I don't know about craziest, but I really liked, uh, we had, I was invited to, um, to the Martha's Vineyard um, film festival. And actually um, Claire, my wife at the time uh, came with me. that, That was the second year I was invited. So it wasn't the first year. First year I was invited with my movie. And then they invited me again the second year to be on, on the jury. Mm-hmm. And to get from Boston to, to the island, to Martha's Vineyard, which is a very like upper class, you know, very prestigious island of wealthy, you know, East Coast people. Yeah. And, um, and to get to the island, you fly on a little like four-seater airplane to, you know, to, to have a, or you take the ferry, but they gave us a, a private airplane. And it was me and Claire and Matthew Modine and his wife. And so it was really cool to kind of share the, the airplane with Matthew Modine and just talk about Stanley Kubrick when they did uh, Full Metal Jacket, you know. 
And I, I thought that was like, for me, that was, it's not like, no, we're not sitting in a restaurant. We're at a little private airplane, me and Matthew with it, and talking about Stanley Kubrick and his experience making crazy. that film. That's and pretty that crazy. Was really, that was really memorable and special, I think. But there were, there were you know, I think at Sundance, uh, meeting Tarantino and having Tarantino take our take the picture of me and other filmmakers, uh, <laughs> not be the one in the picture, but be like that's hey, crazy too. Can you take our picture, <laughs> things like that. Um, <laughs> uh, meeting Martin Scorsese in in Doha, that was really cool, and Robert De Niro. Oh, that's okay. Nice. I'm going to tell you the coolest one. Hit me, because already the first two stories are pretty crazy. So let's let's hear this one. The coolest one was of all the awards. I mean, there were uh, like Sundance and you know all this stuff. There, there's a thing called the AARP. The, it's basically oh, I, f- I forget what it stands for, but it's basically awards for old people. Mm-hmm. Old people. It's like okay. it's the over uh, senior citizens over sixty. And my film was about an old man, um, but I'm a younger filmmaker making a movie about an old man. I was like 30, 31. and. But they were doing the honoring the AARPs and they nominated Captain Abu Raed in the AARP awards and we won the AARP awards, right? Wow. So we were invited at this dinner uh, and it was at the Beverly uh, Hilton and not like the Oscars where it's the giant auditorium. It was like, you know, it was a pretty, like maybe 30, 40 tables, maybe mm-hmm. 50 tables and every table around us. So the table next to us was Jeff Bridges and Billy Crystal and Sean Penn and Robert De Niro and Morgan Freeman and uh, like all the who's who of all the who's yeah. who of Hollywood, right? right. All the legends. And uh, and then I got to win an award and I get it to say my acceptance speech and like point to De Niro and to those guys. Oh but the, God, funniest thing was this. <laughs> the funniest thing was this. Claire and I go in and we, when we enter the room, we're like, it's just like the who's who of Hollywood. And we're like, wow. And we're both like playing it cool, right? We're right. like yeah, you trying have to. not to seem starstruck. Yeah. <laughs> but then we had been watching Entourage, the, the you know, the, the, the show. show Entourage yeah. on HBO. And we'd been binging the Entourage. And then of all the people that we, one would get excited, Claire spots uh, Ari Gold, you know, Jeremy Piven, yeah. Piven the actor. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, no, no way. <laughs> so excited about this little shit. Not De Niro, not Fetchon Fan, all these legends. It was like that little asshole. That's, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> but it was hilarious because we were like keeping our cool, but then this guy, because he, he was so good in, on that show. That's what was most <laughs> exciting. That's crazy. That's crazy. Well, that's, I mean, that's in itself is great. The experience itself is insane. Right, just accepting something in front of the people that you respect and the people that you grew up like that's insane. That's such an insane experience. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool. And that was still you're still riding on that high, yeah, like the Captain Abudaid high and that kind of thing. And that's that's so important. That's so interesting where you where you're talking about um, your second experience, which was a more difficult one, you know, and and trying to figure out your next steps and that kind of thing. I think that's that's so interesting because you know you you know following you obviously. And I'm 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 saying like literally following you, right? Because I I mean I follow you on Instagram and and on Facebook, and um and it's just interesting to see because I mean to me you've you've always been a the you know a, a social media feed, you know what I mean? Like oh he's got a new movie out, oh he's got a you know he's he's did this or that and that kind of thing, you know? 
but you never know what happens in between, you know? And I think that's the thing about social media. It's like we advertise our best life, you know, and that kind of thing. Actually, with you, maybe it's a little different because, I mean, we'll, we'll get to that, but you, you've you also talked about your grief and your that kind of thing also through social media, which, which is why I feel like I know you, you know? Um, I mean, you got super personal on your social media as well. Um, but before we get there, it's, it's interesting to know, like, you know, and that sort of like, how do you pick yourself up after such a, you know, after going at such a trajectory and then dipping again, that must do something to your motivation, right? I mean, that must do something to shit. Like I, I, I need to, I need to do this again I, or maybe not. I don't know. I haven't experienced it. You know what I did after, uh, after that two year cycle, I put all the awards away. I put everything away mm. and I, I, I went back to the feeling of, I want to make my first movie. Mm. It took me that mindset until actually I got my second movie. Ah, I had to say, I'm learning how to do this for the first time. Actually, Paul Schrader, um, who wrote Taxi Driver and some other movies, before I went to make Captain Abu Raid, his brother was one of my teachers and he passed away. And at his um, memorial, I met Paul Schrader and um, and I said, uh, I'm going to go make my first film. What What advice do you have for me? And he said, Take comfort in knowing that you're only going to learn how to make your movie while you're making it. Hmm. So don't feel insecure about that. You're only going to be learning how to do it while you're doing it. You're going to be figuring it out. And just trust your instincts. And I went back to that advice and said, okay, so now I don't know. Like I had, I had all these meetings and I didn't get anywhere with this half-baked second script. What do I do now? And... Um, there was an opportunity, there was a script floating around. There were three projects cooking at Disney and this, this script was floating around and I didn't want to make a kid's movie. The kids in it, it was a soccer movie. The kids in it were like 10 years old and it was like a very kiddie. So, but I read it and I got a meeting with Disney and, and I pitched them. I said, okay, listen, I would change two major things in the script. I said, I would make the kids, I would take them from being 10 year olds. I'd make them 16, 17 or 18. And then that makes it a more grown-up movie, but it can still be appealing to kids because I'm going to have comedy. I'm going to put in more humor in it. I'm going to do this, this, and that. And then the other thing was like, you know, shifting, uh, ex- ex- expediting this, the first act so that it can be tangible instead of shooting in all these countries and traveling and spending all this money on something just that's just a setup. We can set it in Jordan and bring all these players from these different countries to Jordan, which made the studio very happy because like, okay, we don't have to spend as much money. We can fit this movie. We can, he's, this guy's thinking practically. Mm. So whereas with my first film, I was like basically selling people on financing this movie. Here was a studio and I had to sell them on hiring me to direct the script that they've been developed. Mm. And so I recognized that there's a new set of challenges here. And in many ways it was like, okay, how do I take someone else's script and turn it into my own? And see, how do I find myself in this script? How do I find myself in their world? You know, and how do I make it fun? You know, I mean, explain to me that idea of um, um, having, you know, it's not your script, but you made it your script. Like, what what does that mean? I'm not sure. Maybe even people who aren't in the film industry understand what that means. So they have a script, you know, that that was another writer, Nizar Wattad, wrote it. And there was a producer on it, Rachel Gandon. They had developed it with Disney and they kind of, they, their pitch was, let's make a Mighty Ducks in the Middle East, basically, with soccer mm. or football. And making it my own meant interpreting the script and seeing what changes would I make uh, with the writer. And I didn't 
rewrite the script, but I had the writer and I worked with the writer. Once I, once I sold my pitch to Disney, this is my angle. Initially, the movie was supposed to take place in Egypt, actually. But mm. they had struggles with the Egyptian producers, and that's a whole other story. But uh, my pitch to them was, like, I can, I can take this movie to Jordan. We can set it in Jordan. I can pull resources that I have and connections that I've developed because of Captain Abu Ra'id. And I sold them on the idea of packaging it in Jordan, and I, I would direct it. And so that, it, then it became my baby. At that point... It went from being something that was the writer's baby into now it's the director's baby. And then I had to interpret the scenes in a way, you know, fitting in the Disney brand, but also making the kids older because I didn't want to make a kiddie, silly kind of kiddie movie. Right. I wanted it to be like about unity, about the themes that resonate in the Middle East, which are, you know, and the Arab dream and all this stuff. And, and ironically, we shot the movie when the re revolution started happening in Egypt. And, and it, found, it was really interesting because... The themes in that film were speaking about the, the, the looking forward instead of looking backwards. Mm. And we were shooting it as protests and craziness were, were just madness in the streets in Egypt, cars running over people. You know, things were happening. And, you know, we hired um, Farouk Fishawi from Egypt, who was like mm -hmm. a big Egyptian star. And he played the lead, the coach who brings these kids together. How was your experience with uh, Farouk Fishawi? Um, <laughs> wild ride. Farouk was <laughs> He was wild ride. He he loved to tell jokes, and he was uh, he was a wild man. <laughs> he had so much energy. That guy, you know, we'd be like shooting on the street, and people would just like mob around him, you know. But he was he loved people. He would love the people. And in fact, sometimes we'd be like we'd show up on the set, and we're like, "Where's Farouk?" Uh, oh, it's like no, Farouk went to Egypt to protest in the streets. Oh wow! What we're shooting. <laughs> but he was so excited about the protests, you know. So we were like, we were we were sharing Farouk with the the revolution. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. But but he was great. He was amazing. You call action, and he's like great. But he, you know, he had his 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 demons as well. So right. Yeah. Um. Well. So look, this is your the this was your second rendezvous. This is so now you're like you're in this. You got your you got your career going. Um, you got things going in, in your life, good things. Um, and then, you know, um, it, you've, uh, you've mentioned your wife a couple of times before. Um, and I'm just wondering for a person who's been going through this trajectory, um, and obviously to people who don't know, your, your wife, your first wife passed away. Um, and, you know, to go through something like this while going through this ride of your life, you know, how do you balance both things? And if you can take us through that, like, I think that's a very, it's a very interesting and, and maybe human thing to know. And, you know, I would love to know about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't talked about it too much, but let's see. I mean, where do you begin? Um, well, we found out that Claire had cancer on my birthday. So it felt oh, wow. very like just, you know, we were heading out to have breakfast and we got the phone call and it was just like, like this, our life flipped around and everything that we were dreaming of, because she was a writer mm. um, and she had dreams of writing and it was very exciting, you know, doing all these festivals and traveling together and all this. Um, where do I begin? <laughs> how, how, um, where were you? I mean, how did you guys meet? We met in New York at the the founding of the uh, RACICA, the Red Sea Institute for Cinematic Arts, which was, she was one of the founding members of, 
or she was the person who put it together mm-hmm. um, with the dream of basically making uh, filmmakers from all over the Middle East in Aqaba. Wow. And they had, uh, yeah, you know, new filmmakers from Jordan, from Palestine, from Lebanon, from uh, uh, Iraq, from Iran, uh, nurturing new voices. And so we met at the announcement of that because um, we met in 2006 when they uh, they invited me because I was like, I was hyping Captain Abad before making it. Um, and they're like, yeah, this guy's going to make movies. You know, I was at AFI at the time. And uh, so they're like, well, the one Jordanian filmmaker wannabe, but like they, so they needed a guy. So I was like the guy. So I, we met in New York at the announcement uh, and I met the King, uh, His Majesty King Abdullah on that same day um, wow. for the first time. And uh, it was, um, yeah, it was really, I mean, you know, we, we spent the day just like, you know, we had lunch and it was amazing and we had an instant connection, um, but we didn't have that relationship. We I n- didn't see her again until Sundance, actually, and that's where the romance started and all that. Mm. Uh, two and a half years. Two and a half. Two and a half years of blissful adventuring, and then, and then just like fighting for life for three and a half years. Oh wow! Three and a half years. Wow. Yeah, and this is interesting. We didn't let people. We didn't tell people. You know, I mean, our families obviously knew, but like all the things that we we didn't put that on social media. We didn't want to yeah. get into that advertise that and so uh, she f- she fought like a trooper she was uh, a warrior a, a true inspiration and, a, and a, a beacon of light I mean she was mm. she fought for life she fought to live mm. you know, just a, a tough battle does it was it was it um, I mean obviously three and a half years is a long time so how does how did you how did you manage just working and functioning as a you know, as, as normal life moves forward, you know, like, uh, how does that, how does that work? Just, uh, you just survive, you know, you hang on, you hang on and you just keep, uh, it was brutal. I mean, we made Strangely in Love, my romantic comedy during, before her first chemo, before first chemo, after first surgery, before first chemo, it was like log in my head, but, uh, and she, was recovering from a surgery and she had a cameo in the movie and she was helping me produce the film. And, you know, we're like, it gives us purpose. You know, it gives us something to really focus on. And so mm. we were making a, a light, happy, romantic comedy. And so that was like the thing you hang on to between um, the, you know, it, it's the distraction from the battle of uncertainty and and fear of the bad news of, you know, this thing coming back over and over, right. you know, because yeah. it kept coming back. Right. Um, and then when I made the rendezvous, my fourth movie, that was a, that's a very difficult subject. Um, but it was very, it was a, it was a three and a half million dollar movie and the producer, it wasn't my script. I was hired on it and, you know, you accumulate a lot of debt when you're fighting medical bills and all that stuff. And I had to take the job and I wanted the movie to, to also survive and it gave me a reason to continue and we were still like hanging on to life and that was a long process working on that film before we even got to production but the timing happened that we got to production right 
near the end of Claire's battle. So I was traveling between Jordan and LA because Claire was in LA and the film was shooting in Jordan. Mm. And I was like in prep, I was traveling between the two places and Anne-Marie Jasser, my, my friend filmmaker, she was basically filling in for me in prep and she was my backup. Um, I, I left the movie at the, you know, at the end of the shoot. She finished the rest of the last three days of the shoot because we got like, you know, the call that Claire was just couldn't, um, <clears throat> so, um, and I made it back and she was waiting for me, essentially. Mm. You know, I don't talk about this, but... Um, and then I resented the movie for a while, you know? Mm. I resented that this movie kind of was my escape in a way, you know, mm. mentally. That I had something to have, that, but she wanted me to have something that would keep me... Um, <clears throat> Uh, busy after, you know, and it did. It was, you know, uh, we were doing the editing and post-production in Beverly Hills and I'd come home um, to an empty house, an empty apartment. And it, w it was surreal. It was uh, very um, confusing. And <clears throat> I didn't want to leave the edit, you know, studio. Uh, my psychologist became my editor. My editor became my psychologist. Sasha, he was like my therapist. I would go into the edit room and start crying. Wow. And uh, he would just like stop editing and just listen. And, um, and in the edit room next to us was Sylvester Stallone working on Creed and Sam Raimi working on whatever he was working on and uh, Warren Beatty in the next one. That's crazy. And uh, I just didn't want to come home. You know, I just like it would like when the world, when the sun came down, it felt like vampires were rising. Wow. It just was very um, strange. And I was like, your mind plays tricks on you. And I was kind of waiting for Claire to come in through the door and say, baby, I'm back. You know, yeah. it was just weird. Yeah. The hardest thing, you know, anyone can go through, you know, it's, uh, it's, it definitely feels like, you know, just you talking about it. And, you know, I know people are listening to this, but I see you because we're doing this on a call. And, um, and it, I could see that through, like, just how you speaking about it, it seems like one of the most difficult things that anyone can go through. Um, and, you know, I'm just... Yeah. While all this was happening, um, Syria, ISIS was destroying Syria. And you'd see that stuff on the news and you tell yourself, um, well, it could be worse, you know? I mean, right. there was so much darkness in the world happening. And I tried to tell myself that um <clears throat> that um there's other things that could be you know it, it was i mean it was awful it was awful yeah but you know it, it was dark times yeah. and movies give you kind of an escape in a way is that how you survive like would you say like to get out of that grief um did you sort of like delve into work and sort of you know, is that what you did? I ran a lot, listened mm. to a lot of music, running and listening to music. <clears throat> and my dogs died also oh, in, wow. in that whole battle as well. And my dogs were my best friends. They were always with me. They were my babies. So like I went through triple tragedy. Oh my <laughs> uh, God. Of course, with my dogs, it was like their life cycle, but I still didn't have them with me. So I, it just like we watched our life kind of disintegrate. Um, and then it was just me and, um, we had a lot of family around us, but then everyone went away. 
And um, my friends couldn't even feel like comfortable to come to, to the apartment because Claire was gone. Right. Um, so um, anyways, so um, movies running, you know, movies become like medicine. There were three movies in particular that were uh, destroyed me and lifted me up in a way, uh, cast away. I felt like I was on an island. Mm. Uh, Life of Pi, also a movie about isolation and loss, and but storytelling and narrative, how that helps you. And Braveheart, in a way, because it was like also kind of the anger of... Because you experience anger. Mm. It's not just grief, it's it's anger. You, you get angry. How can the world continue when you lost your person? Mm. How does that make sense? And you try to find anything to hang on to, to survive that uh, brutal journey, you know? And, um, you know, um, and then the universe sent me two, two people or two, um, well, one person and, and a dog. Uh, Meg, who was in the cast of um, The Rendezvous, lived in the same neighborhood. And, you know, she saw me kind of go through that stuff when we were filming. And so she became my best friend and she was my shoulder to cry on. And, um, and... Um, that became my lifeline. Mm. And, uh, and then my dog, I'm getting really personal here, but why, why not? Uh, and then my dog, you know, it felt like Claire sent me Migo, my dog, who was, uh, she, you know, who, he, he, was, he became my best friend. And I'd go to the dog park and run with him, and that was new life, you know. Mm. And something happened around me. We didn't grow, like where we lived, we didn't have kids around us. But then suddenly the, the, the apartment complex that I was in, people started having, moving in with babies. Mm. And then you start to see the world through the eyes of children, which I hadn't been around. You live in LA, you're not surrounded by kids. Kid, you know, it's not a kid-friendly place in particular. Right. It's, um, it's full of narcissists and dreamers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so my neighbor, you know, he moved in, another filmmaker uh, named uh, uh, John Kesselman, he moved in and he had his uh, son, he was like one year old. And his son would always, in the morning, call my name from his balcony. I'm mean. <laughs> and it felt like someone was kind of like telling me, hey, continue, you know, you continue, keep going. But it was hard. It was hard. And books, books were a huge series. Books and podcasts. I listened to Tim Ferriss a lot. And I listened to, um, you know, a bunch of podcasts. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. And books. There's one book in particular, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. That eventually, I mean, I read it like a couple of years after that, but the grief lasted for a long time. Wow. Um, if if um, anybody who follows you on Instagram, again, that's where I get my cues from when I talk to you. It's, um, I, I think I could, I could see that for a while. You know, I could see, you know, your posts and the way you posted and, and about your, uh, about Claire. It, 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 it really came through. I don't, I don't know her, right? But I just, I see the pictures, I see your captions and stuff like that. Um, but what I also see is I feel like there's a renewed joy um, in your life, um, and it happened a year ago. You know when you had your 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 first kid, um, and I could tell through your photography, I could tell through how you sort of like portray your child. Um, it's almost like it's 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 amazing watching it. You know I know I don't I don't know what happened in between, but just seeing that sort of poetic you know thing that happened to your life is is actually quite incredible. Strange. Yeah, I feel lucky to have a second chance. Meg, Meg, who's the funniest person I know, 
and the most selfless, like giant heart. Um, it feels like they're connected, you know, her and Claire in a way, mm. even though she never met her, but it feels, it feels like she got to know her through me and she, um, she's my life partner. And, um, and we made a decision to be together despite the ups and downs that we had in the beginning. Many, <laughs> I drove her nuts anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, we named our daughter Zoe, which means life in Greek, you know? Mm. And so, um, yeah, I feel lucky in that way. I feel lucky. You got to keep going, you know? Yeah. I mean, people said you move on. You never move on. You don't move on, but you continue. Right. You know, you adapt. It's like when people, when people would tell me, you know, you'll move on. I would be offended by that. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. Like I'm scarred for the rest of my life. But I saw a video. Someone said like, you, you're like a, uh, if you experience grief, you're like a jaw and like a, a vase that falls apart. But then when you put it back together, you use this golden glue and it becomes more beautiful because now it's scars are kind of part of it and they have more patterns and things. And, you know, it's like, I do feel very lucky. Um, now I felt like the world was a dark cloud for a very long time mm. and it was soul crushing to get the news that you're not gonna, you know, live more than 15 months. Mm. That was the hardest part, harder than any, um, any other point was when they gave us the terminal diagnosis. Yeah. We just broke down. We broke yeah. down. She was 35 when she got the news. I mean, when she, when they said, this is only a down, downward. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's just, just talking about it. Nobody wants to be there. And like, you know, anybody who goes through it is, you know, it comes out as a survivor. I mean, I think both people in the relationship, right? Not just uh, not just the person going through it, but also the person living with the person. I mean, it's it's a battle for both, you know. And um, but yeah, man, look, it's 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 amazing that you reached today, you know, where you are today, and that's you know, it seems like you've gotten on the other side of the hill, you know, or the other where where you. You know, where you, you know, you survived what you survived and you went through what you went through. And I think it's, it's a really important lesson for a lot of people out there that despite what you go through and despite the dark cloud and despite, you know, the dark times, you will overcome, you know, and, and you will continue. Like, as you said, um, it's, not, it's not a part of moving on, but it's a part of like living and adapting and continuing. And, uh, and I love that we, you have that in your story, you know, and, and I think there's, there's something there for for people um, who go through something like this and and know that, hey, I mean, look what here 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 you are at the second chance. Here you are with your with your beautiful child and and your new beautiful wife and your new beautiful dog. Um, it's almost like uh, you know you're continuing. You're, you have continued and you're continuing awesomely. You know, and I think that's I think that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to just keep moving and, and we just we have one track right I mean we all have we're living in one track we have no choice there, there's a there's a book that, again I, so much was in books right there was one book that said um, grief becomes like an old hat you don't want to take it off <laughs> right that's that's a really good point yeah it's, it's stitches by uh, by um, Anne Lamont she talks about losing her best friend or one of her best friends and she talks about how you put yourself back together but you don't want to keep wearing the old hat. The whole, I am wearing the same one. <laughs> but um, maybe that's symbolic. 
Um, but she she talks about that. She says um, you you you'll start getting really comfortable, and you don't want to take it off, but you have to continue. It kind of is a difficult thing to do because I I always carry her with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, but I so I, I find it very hard to let go. But it doesn't mean that I can't be completely present at the same time. Of course. And um, and then the, Victor Frankl in his book, I recommend this to anyone going through difficulties. Uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, have you read it? No. I'm right after this now, it seems like your recommendation. So he survived the Holocaust. He was a psychologist um, from Vienna. He survived the Holocaust, and. He used himself as an experiment on how he survived. And then when he came out of the, um, the, the, the death camp, after losing his entire family, where did he find meaning? Instead of kind of, uh, he deviated from the Freud and Jung school of thought where Freud and Jung look at your past to kind of make sense of where you are psychologically. He created this thing called logotherapy, which logo means meaning. Mm-hmm. And and his idea is that instead of dwelling on what you've lost, you live for what you want your life to mean in the future. Mm. And what you and, and, and there's three things you live for, right? You live for joy of others rather than your own. You remove yourself from your own narcissism or self-absorption uh, or whatever you know, degree of that. And then you give your life purpose by helping as a community or helping individuals and not like I'm Mr. Like help the community. But for me, what that translates to is uh, we've made new life and I, I, I try to be, I'm still selfish in my own ways. I know I am because I'm a filmmaker and I have <laughs> dreams and ambitions, but I try to also be more balanced. You know, I think mm. I'm a better person than I was before going through all of that. So I think, Otherwise, Meg would not be with me because <laughs> there's no reason to be with me. I was just an old Camacho. But yeah. That's amazing. I mean, look, we're, we, let's, let's look at today. So like if we were to look at today and, you know, despite all, the, I mean, I think throughout this conversation, we covered so much. I feel like I know you so much better and I think everybody listening knows you way better. You know, uh, we, we talked about, you know, your dream from Ohio to going to, uh, LA to getting into the school that you wanted to get to, to doing Abu Ra'ed, to, uh, to succeeding, to, to the ego parts, you know, to meeting your legends, um, to getting married, to doing your next movie, to, to going through grief. So, and then getting married again and, and having a second chance at life. Wait, we're not we're, even married yet. We, we haven't gotten married. We're like, that's just like, that's, that's paperwork. Like, well, well, tell us we're together. You're together today, and well, I, well despite whatever it is, I mean, you 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 have the second chance at life. So we're, you know, today. Like, if I'm talking to you today, like, you know, where are you today, and what's next for you? Like, what what do you what are your? I mean, your dream hasn't ended, right? You you keep telling me about I I still dream and I still. So, what's your dream for the next? You know, for the next chapter of your life. Well, I still feel like I I've, I'm at the beginning of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, it's strange to say that after doing four movies and a Netflix show and God knows how many scripts that never took off. Um, but it, it really genuinely um, 
does feel, I've always felt like an outsider, which I am, um, even though I've worked with studios, but I think that's a good attitude to have anyways, because in this business, you have to keep competitive, you know, you have to keep edge. So, so I started teaching part-time, like I'll, I'll teach uh, at AFI and I'm learning from my students, the, the second year directors. I teach the thesis course where they, it's the thesis portfolio co- course where they um, develop their thesis films. And I find myself learning and keeping those engines sh- sharper and sharper by analyzing the, the, the films with, with the fellows, with the students. Mm. And I feel like I, I keep getting better at the craft of writing. And I certainly have learned a lot more from life than what I had accumulated when I made my first film. Mm. So I feel that those themes, and certainly grief is the biggest of them, have found themselves in my new scripts that I'm um, shopping around, that I've written. And I mean, I could tell you about my next, what will hopefully be my next feature, mm-hmm. um, which is a ping pong movie. It's about a Syrian refugee who comes to the US, a 13-year-old girl, and finds herself um, pulled into the world of ping pong hustling. Right. And it's her relationship with her, this old man who's kind of a washed up guy and the reason she gets into that is because this kid, this punk kid spray paints, you know, terrorists on her uncle's car wash. And she wants to beat him at his own game and she wants revenge. Mm. So it's a revenge tale, but she lost her mother in Syria. And then you discover this kid, he lost his father in, in Iraq. And so it's like these parallel lives. And it's a movie about loss. Interesting. But it has humor. It has action. It has ping pong action. And it's a sports movie, but it's a hustle movie, and it's a international movie, but it's an American movie, and it's all heart, and it's it's probably the best thing I've written. Awesome, um, man! Amazing. So that's one of them. Yeah, I'm very excited about that, and then um, very excited about Hump, which is this long uh, journey to make this uh, animated adventure movie about a camel who crosses the desert to find his boy. It's kind of in many ways. <laughs> my relationship with my dog, right? It's like that kind of bond, that inseparable bond, but it's about family and all the characters around him have lost someone. Or So there's that element of that. Um, so I wrote that with my writing partner, uh, Matt Antonelli. That's amazing. And then I have actually, I've been developing a sequel to Captain Aburad, not a sequel to Aburad, but continuing the story of Tare, the boy who sells the candy. And mm-hmm. I left his story open-ended. Uh, at the end of Captain Aburaid, and this movie picks up. I've written the treatment for it, and now we're. My goal is to write the script and. Wow, so that's, uh, that's breaking news right here. It is actually. I've <laughs> not announced that, so there you go. If there you, you have go. Anyone left listening to the rest of the podcast? <laughs> if we've engaged or alienated, that's there's the news. But I'm very excited about that. Uh, I've written the treatment, and and it's its own movie. So if you don't know Captain Aburaid, you can enjoy this film for. The same themes, social class and dream and ambition and, and, you know, perseverance. And it's kind of a rocky kind of story, you know, like not giving up. Mm. And that's kind of the theme of my life too. So, um, I love that. So I'm very excited about that. And then, uh, and then I'm working on this documentary about my hero, Michael Kamen. And so developing that with his daughter, he passed away. He was a composer. He passed away in 2003. I mean, to the rock fans listening, 
Michael Kamen, the guy who conducted S&M Metallica's uh, Symphony and Metallica album. So a, a lot of rock fans are very familiar with who he, he actually yeah wrote it. I mean, if you watch the documentary, uh, the making of uh, S&M, he's very much in that documentary. So uh, yeah, it's I mean for rock fans and metal fans, yeah, everybody knows. He worked with Pink Floyd on the Wall, Division Bell, Final right. Cut. He worked with. Eric Clapton, he wrote a guitar concerto for Eric Clapton that was like an, an incredible piece of music. Amazing. Have you heard it? Have you heard his guitar concerto? I have not, but I've heard his work on Division Bell and uh, and and his Pink Floyd work. Uh, so Pink Floyd, my second favorite band. So, you know, like having Michael Kamen on both, you know, so I, I'm very familiar with who, who he is and what he's done. So I, I had a, a Zoom call with um, his his good friend, uh, Bob Ezrin, who introduced him to Pink Floyd last wow. week. Yeah, that's, he's I mean, Bob Ezrin is also quite legendary. So like, look at you, it's like, talking to all these legends. So We were on a Zoom, Bob Ezrin and, and Jeff Pollock and like like his, his circle of friends. And I'm like, they're all like, you're leading the charge on this document. I'm very excited about that. Amazing. And, and he, I'll tell you a quick story about Michael Kamen, because this is interesting. Yeah. I was like his biggest fan. Like I was just obsessed with his music. I don't know if I was his biggest fan, but I was obsessed with his music when I was a kid after seeing Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Mm. And on and on and on, I just, everything he wrote, I would just eat it up. And Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Robin Hood, and Three Musketeers, and Mr. Holland's Opus, and Don Juan de Marco, blah, blah. Wow. See, I didn't know he did all of that. That's amazing. Oh yeah. No, he's a legend. He's a legend. He's an amazing composer. Um, and I wrote him a fan letter. When okay. I was in college, just to ask for his autograph. And he called me. What? In response to my fan letter. Yeah. He called me and I lost my mind when he called me. I could not believe that he, like, would bother, you know? And he said, yeah, well, we're having a concert. He lived in England. And he's like, I'm having a concert in June. If you want to come, you know, John Williams is having a concert. I'm having a concert. Come on. Come on. Over. Wow. And so I flew out to London and I met him in London. And he changed my life. He was the guy who showed me that dreams come true. Okay, a, so this is interesting. That's amazing. So then, you know, I'm a big film music fan. Uh, anyone who knows me knows how obsessed with film scores I am. Yeah. And I love the orchestra. I love the orchestra film scores. And so Michael Kamen, I dedicated Captain Aburait to three people. My grandfather, Michael Kamen, and Basil Polidorus, also another amazing composer who also passed away. So Michael Kamen passed away in 2003. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, when we recorded the music for Captain Abu Ra'id, I had my composer, Austin Wintry, got the Hollywood Studio Symphony, and we recorded at Warner Brothers. Like, mm -hmm. I wanted a piece of the budget to go towards music because music is that important. And so at the first uh, break, or uh, before the film, uh, before we started recording at the first session, I got up and told the orchestra, you know, how I'm dedicating the movie to Michael Kamen and how much music has played a part of my life. And at the first break, members of the orchestra came up and they started telling me how they had played on Robin Hood and they had played on these all these amazing Little Weapon, all these Michael Kamen scores. So life was coming back full circle yeah. at Warner Brothers where many of these scores were recorded as it's well. Amazing. And like, it just felt like, again, a spiritual connection. That's amazing. You know? And now here we are, 17 years after he passed away, and hopefully this documentary will come to fruition fully. And, you know, we're in the beginning stages of formulating the shape of it. But essentially, it's going to be my love letter to Michael Kamen. With his daughter and his brother, I want to preserve his legacy and continue to tell his story as well. 
Well, if I if I would request one thing, is that you have to have one of the guys from Metallica in your documentary. Like you just have to. Like it's just a such a big thing, you know, for metal fans. And yeah, yeah, we've talked about that. We've we've definitely talked about that. Yeah, Lars Ulrich. You know, I think he's the guy. Or or James Hetfield. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see which, you know, definitely. Uh, I, I, I think I want to focus it on Eric Clapton, but if I can get him. But because the Clapton Concerto is an incredible piece of music. Right. And right. It, it's never been officially released, by the way. There's a bootleg oh, wow. of it. I'm oh, actually, okay. I'll send you the Spotify. It's, but anyways, we want to try to get that thing released and get, get Clapton's. I mean, there's a certain tragedy associated with that story. Oh, when interesting. Clapton's son passed away. Um, he stopped playing rock, right? He just resorted to blues. And they were just about to go record his stuff in the studio because mm. they, they toured with the concerto in 1990, uh, 1990 um, in the 24 Nights tour with Eric Clapton. Mm. And, uh, but we now found the recordings. Wow. Um, oh, that's a big they're, one. They're there. Okay. So we're, we're, we're about to go through them and see if we can go back to Eric and say, he was never happy with his live performance. That's why he went in the studio. Uh, and then tragedy happened. And before Michael came and passed away, Eric Clapton said, I think it's time we revisit our concerto. And then mm. Michael came and passed away. So this thing, which is a masterpiece of music, has not been officially released. It feels like it could do like a documentary just on that. It's, it's in a way, the documentary is going to revolve around that, but ah. also around... I mean, Michael Kamen had an epic life, you know. He was friends with George Harrison and the Beatles and, you know, he's, he's like worked with everybody, you know, Bob Dylan, uh, Sting, Pavarotti, Tom Petty, Annie Lennox, the Eurythmics. Wow. The list goes on and on. I love that you could name all of these bands from the top of your mind. I mean, it shows what dedication you have towards Michael Kamen. He, you know, I love him. <laughs> I mean, he <laughs> changed my life. He changed my it life. Yeah. It came through. I mean, this has been incredible. Honestly, this is one of my favorite podcast episodes that I've done. I mean, hands down, this has been, despite all the technical difficulties that we had. You know, <laughs> sorry, guys, I'm coughing, but it's not COVID. I I got tested. Um, <laughs> I did five tests so far. Um, but yeah, this has been incredible. Uh, you know, you have such a colorful um, history and, you know, the way you tell it, is, I mean, you are a filmmaker, you know, a storyteller by profession. So, I mean, it's very captivating, to be honest. Um, I really appreciate that. I know you and I have been talking about doing a podcast, I want to say for, for a year now, you know, just like going back and forth. Yeah. yeah. It, it's just been hard through the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, I, I mean, for me, it was just like the, the I, I'm very used to doing it in the studio with a person with me and that kind of thing. So that's why in, during pandemic, it's just been like, difficult to pull this through but i'm i'm very happy that we finally did this you know and uh, and i feel like there should be much more of this uh, when you release your documentary your films your all these things you got to reserve a spot for me you know in your press tours coming up so we can do Hello, these conversations we'll make it a tradition yeah, we should. I'm, we should definitely. I'm up for it. We'll find. We'll find more and more to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely, there was so much here, man. I feel like with every single topic you talked about. I'm glad. Look, honestly, I usually like clock it in an hour, but we there was so much there that I, I, I'm pretty sure it's been like an hour and a half now or something. Yeah. So. Yeah. And and hopefully next time it'll be uh, without you know all these technical things. But anyway, 
Um, I, I, I want to thank you. I don't want to take too much of your time. I, I, it's like 11.30 at your end, um, at p.m., not, not a.m. So people should know you're in L.A. right now. Um, but yeah, look, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you, man. Good luck to you. Good luck with the podcast network. That's exciting. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, my offer still stands. We should do a podcast together. Um, and how do we cook that up? A narrative-based podcast. Let's do it. Let's 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 think of something. I'm I'm sure th- I'm sure the audience wants. Right. This. I forgot you said something about that. I did. I did. I do have a lot of scripts that I'm working on right now. Um, and for people, we're still kind of in the podcast, but, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of things that I'm working on right now, like a lot of, um, uh, narrative based podcasts. So where you're in video, I'm, I'm focused on audio. Um, and right. you know, we're doing Arabic and English, English, because I think there's still potential. Did you ever wa- listen to the, the blockbuster, the one about Spielberg and, and Lucas, and then the other one about James Cameron making, making no. all his films? I have not. It's a that. really cool production. Season two, it's called Blockbuster. It's like 10 episodes, but they, it's a really well-performed radio show, essentially, of oh, wow. the life of James Cameron. Oh, amazing. A big orchestral score and a really symphonic sound and, and like really amazing use of sound effects and really good performances. It's very interesting, actually. Yeah. So there's a yeah. podcast called Business Wars and um, uh, sort of uh, it's also like something like that where it's performative, it's narrative, it's that sort of thing. Um, great music, great production. Um, so that's, I love these type of shows. So I'll definitely check that one out for sure. Yeah. Narrative wars, narrative wars, uh, a business wars. So on business your next, wars, on your next run, you know, check, check that out. There's, there's yeah. a really interesting season, uh, Netflix war. versus uh, blockbuster. Um, just check at least that one. Oh, I think you'll be interested in it. You know, just how Netflix yeah. sort of like won that battle against uh, Blockbuster, how HBO came into that mix and, you know, how uh, Netflix oh, I ultimately... Watched, I watched that rooting for Netflix. I hated Blockbuster. They were terrible. They would charge you these rewind fees for yeah. bullshit. <laughs> Resented them for all the rewind fees they made me pay. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so, so you kind of know the ending there. Uh, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, man. Look, it's it's awesome. Thank you so much, and um, you, and I'm sure we'll do Thank this you. again. And and I want us to be in touch more often. Like this is like seriously now. Like I, I'm gonna send you my WhatsApp. And, yeah, yeah, uh, this WhatsApp because the uh, messenger on Instagram doesn't. Uh, I don't check that very often. I mean, I don't check the messages as much. Yeah. So this is this cool. is probably like WhatsApp the end me. of the podcast. But I, I will. I'll definitely get you on <laughs> yeah. that WhatsApp thing. Dude, thank you so much. Appreciate it, and okay, uh, I'll be we'll we'll be in touch soon. I'll hopefully release this in the next uh, week or so, um, and uh, I'll I'll tag you on it. Okay. Yeah. Sounds sounds good. All right. All right, Thanks man. Have, have a good one, and Yo, uh, care, see you. Bye. All right. Ciao. Bye. Bye.